Section 51 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2, Section 51. Selected Works by Peter Christian Asbjörnsen. 1812 to 1885. Asbjörnsen was born January 15, 1812, at Christiania, Norway. He entered the university in 1833, but was presently obliged to take the position of tutor with a family in Romerike. Four years later he came back to the university, where he studied medicine, but also, and particularly, zoology and botany, subjects which he subsequently taught in various schools. During his life among the country people he had begun to collect folk-tales and legends, and afterwards, on long foot-tours undertaken in pursuit of his favorite studies, he added to this store. In cooperation with his lifelong friend, Jorgen Moe, subsequently bishop of Christiansand, he published in 1838 a first collection of folk-stories. In later years his study of folklore went on side by side with his study of zoology. At various times, from 1846 to 1853, he received stipends from the Christiania University to enable him to pursue zoological investigations at points along the Norwegian coast. In addition to these journeys, he traversed Norway in every direction, partly to observe the condition of the forests of the country, and partly to collect the popular legends, which seemed always to have been in his mind. From 1856 to 1858, he studied forestry at Tharand, and in 1860 was made head forester of the district of Trondheim in the north of Norway. He retained this position until 1864, when he was sent by the government to Holland, Germany, and Denmark to investigate the turf industry. On his return he was made the head of a commission whose purpose was to better the turf production of the country, from which position he was finally released with a pension in 1876. He died in 1885. Asbjörnsen's principal literary work was in the direction of the folk-tales of Norway, although the list of his writings on natural history, popular and scientific, is a long one. As a scientist he made several important discoveries in deep-sea soundings, which gave him, at home and abroad, a wide reputation. But the significance of his work as a collector of folklore has in a great measure overshadowed this phase of his activity. His greatest works are Norska Folka Eventyr, Norwegian Folk Tales, in collaboration with Moe, which appeared in 1842-44, to and subsequently in many editions. Norska Holdra Eventyr og Folksagen, Norwegian Folk Tales and Folk Legends, in 1845. In the stories published by Esbjörnsen alone, he has not confined himself simply to the reproduction of the tales in their popular form, but has retold them with an admirable setting of the characteristics of the life of the people in their particular environment. He was a rare lover of nature, and there are many exquisite bits of natural description. Asbjörnsen's literary power was of no mean merit, and his work not only found immediate acceptance in his own country, but has been widely translated into the other languages of Europe. Norwegian literature in particular owes him a debt of gratitude, for he was the first to point out the direction of the subsequent national development. Gudbrandt of the Mountainside There was once a man named Gudbrandt, who
who had a farm which lay on the side of a mountain, whence he was called Gudbrand of the Mountainside. He and his wife lived in such harmony together, and were so well matched, that whatever the husband did seemed to the wife so well done that it could not be done better. Let him therefore act as he might, she was equally pleased. They owned a plot of ground, and had a hundred dollars lying at the bottom of a chest, and in the stall two fine cows. One day the woman said to Gudbrand, I think we might as well drive one of the cows to town and sell it. We should then have a little pocket-money, for such respectable persons as we are ought to have a few shillings in hand as well as others. The hundred dollars at the bottom of the chest we had better not touch, but I do not see why we should keep more than one cow. Besides, we shall be somewhat the gainers, for instead of two cows I shall have only one to milk and look after. These words Gudbrand thought both just and reasonable, so he took the cow and went to the town in order to sell it, but when he came there he could not find anyone who wanted to buy a cow. Well, thought Gudbrand, I can go home again with my cow. I have both stall and collar for her, and it is no farther to go backwards than forwards. So saying, he began wandering home again. When he had gone a little way, he met a man who had a horse he wished to sell, and Gudbrand thought it better to have a horse than a cow, so he exchanged with the man. Going a little further still, he met a man driving a fat pig before him, and thinking it better to have a fat pig than a horse, he made an exchange with him also. A little farther on he met a man with a goat. A goat, he thought, is always better to have than a pig, so he made an exchange with the owner of the goat. He now walked on for an hour, when he met a man with a sheep. With him he exchanged his goat, for, he thought, it is always better to have a sheep than a goat. After walking some way again, meeting a man with a goose, he changed the sheep for the goose. Then going on a long way, he met a man with a cock, and thought to himself, it is better to have a cock than a goose, and so he gave his goose for the cock. Having walked on till the day was far gone, and beginning to feel hungry, he sold the cock for twelve shillings, and bought some food, for, he thought, it is better to support life than to carry back the cock. After this he continued his way homeward, till he reached the house of his nearest neighbor, where he called in. "'How have matters gone with you in town?' asked the neighbor. "'Oh,' answered Gudbrand, "'but so-so.' I cannot boast of my luck, neither can I exactly complain of it. He then began to relate all that he had done from first to last. You'll meet with a warm reception when you get home to your wife, said his neighbor. God help you, I would not be in your place. I think things might have been much worse, said Gudbrand, but whether they are good or bad, I have such a gentle wife that she will never say a word, let me do what I may. Yes, I know that, answered his neighbor, but I do not think she will be so gentle in this instance. "'Shall we lay a wager?' said Gudbrandt of the mountainside. "'I have got a hundred dollars in my chest at home. Will you venture the like sum?' "'Yes, I will,' replied the neighbor, and they wagered accordingly, and remained till evening drew on, when they set out together for Gudbrandt's house, having agreed that the neighbor should stand outside and listen, while Gudbrandt went in to meet his wife. "'Good evening,' said Gudbrandt. "'Good evening,' said his wife. "'Thank God thou art there.' "'Yes, there he was.' His wife then began asking him how he had fared in the town. So-so, said Gudbrand, I have not much to boast of, for when I reached the town there was no one who would buy the cow, so I changed it for a horse. Many thanks for that, said his wife. We are such respectable people that we ought to ride to church as well as others, and if we can afford to keep a horse, we may certainly have one. Go and put the horse in the stable, children. Oh, said Gudbrand, 
but I have not got the horse, for as I went along the road, I exchanged the horse for a pig. Well, said the woman, that is just what I should have done myself. I thank thee for that. I can now have pork and bacon in my house to offer anybody when they come to see us. What should we have done with a horse? People would only have said we were grown too proud to walk to church. Go, children, and put the pig in. But I have not brought the pig with me, exclaimed Gudbrand, for when I had gone on a little further, I exchanged it for a milch goat. How admirably thou dost everything, exclaimed his wife. What should we have done with a pig? People would only have said that we eat everything we own. Yes, now that I have a goat, I can get both milk and cheese, and still keep my goat. Go and tie the goat, children. No, said Gudbrandt, I have not brought home the goat, for when I came a little farther on, I changed the goat for a fine sheep. Well, cried the woman, thou hast done everything just as I could wish, just as if I had been there myself. What should we have done with a goat? I must have climbed up the mountains and wandered through the valleys to bring it home in the evening. With a sheep, I should have wool and clothing in the house, with food in the bargain. So go, children, and put the sheep into the field. But I have not got the sheep, said Gudbrandt, for as I went a little further, I changed it away for a goose. Many, many thanks for that, said his wife. What should I have done with a sheep? For I have neither a spinning wheel, nor have I much desire to toil and labor to make clothes. We can purchase clothing, as we have hitherto. Now I shall have roast goose, for which I have often longed, and then I can make a little pillow of the feathers. Go and bring in the goose, children. But I have not got the goose, said Gudbrandt. As I came on a little further, I changed it away for a cock. Heaven only knows how thou couldst think of all this, exclaimed his wife. It is just as if I had managed it all myself. A cock, that is just as good as if thou had brought an eight-day clock, for as the cock crows every morning at four o'clock, we shall be stirring betimes. What should I have done with a goose? I do not know how to dress a goose, and a pillow I can stuff with moss. Go and fetch the cock, children." but I have not brought the cock home with me, said Gudbrandt, for when I had gone a long, long way, I became so hungry that I was obliged to sell the cock for twelve shillings to keep me alive. Well, thank God thou always dost, just as I could wish to have it done. What should we have done with a cock? We are our own masters. We can lie as long as we like in the morning. God be praised, I have got thee here safe again, and as thou always dost everything so right, we want neither a cock, nor a goose, nor a pig, nor a sheep, nor a cow. Hereupon Gudbrandt opened the door. Have I won your hundred dollars? he asked of the neighbor, who was obliged to confess that he had. Translation by Benjamin Thorpe in Yuletide Stories, Bond's Library The Widow's Son There was once a very poor woman who had only one son. She toiled for him till he was old enough to be confirmed by the priest, when she told him that she could support him no longer, but that he must go out in the world and gain his own livelihood. So the youth set out, and after wandering about for a day or two he met a stranger. "'Whither art thou going?' asked the man. "'I am going out in the world to see if I can get employment,' answered the youth. "'Wilt thou serve us?' "'Yes, just as well serve you as anybody else,' answered the youth." Thou shalt be well cared for with me, said the man. Thou shalt be my companion, and do little or nothing besides. So the youth resided with him, had plenty to eat and drink, and very little or nothing to do, but he never saw a living person in the man's house. One day his master said to him, I am going to travel, and shall be absent eight days. 
During that time thou wilt be here alone, but thou must not go into either of these four rooms. If thou dost, I will kill thee when I return. The youth answered that he would not. When the man had gone away three or four days, the youth could no longer refrain, but went into one of the rooms. He looked around, but saw nothing except a shelf over a door, with a whip made of briar on it. This is well worth forbidding me so strictly from seeing, thought the youth. When the eight days had passed, the man came home again. Thou hast not, I hope, been into any of my rooms, said he. No, I have not, answered the youth. That I shall soon be able to see, said the man, going into the room the youth had entered. But thou hast been in, said he, and now thou shalt die. The youth cried and entreated to be forgiven, so that he escaped with his life but had a severe beating. When that was over, they were as good friends as before. Sometime after this the man took another journey. This time he would be away a fortnight, but first forbade the youth again from going into any of the rooms he had not already been in, but the one he had previously entered he might enter again. This time all took place just as before, the only difference being that the youth abstained for eight days before he entered the forbidden rooms. In one apartment he found only a shelf over the door, on which lay a huge stone and a water-bottle. This is also something to be in such fear about, thought the youth again. When the man came home, he asked whether he had been in any of the rooms. No, he had not, was the answer. I shall soon see, said the man, and when he found that the youth had nevertheless been in, he said, Now I will no longer spare thee, thou shalt die. But the youth cried and implored that his life might be spared, and thus again escaped with a beating, but this time got as much as could be laid on him. When he had recovered from the effect of this beating, he lived as well as ever, and he and the man were as good friends as before. Sometime after this the man again made a journey, and now he was to be three weeks absent. He warned the youth anew not to enter the third room. If he did, he must at once prepare to die. At the end of a fortnight the youth had no longer any command over himself, and stole in, but here he saw nothing save a trap-door in the floor. He lifted it up and looked through. There stood a large copper kettle that boiled and boiled, yet he could see no fire under it. I should like to know if it is hot, thought the youth, dipping his finger down into it. But when he drew it up again he found that all his finger was gilt. He scraped and washed it, but the gilding was not to be removed, so he tied a rag over it, and when the man returned and asked him what was the matter with his finger, he answered that he had cut it badly. But the man, tearing the rag off, at once saw what ailed the finger. At first he was going to kill the youth, but as he cried and begged again, he merely beat him, so that he was obliged to lie in bed for three days. The man then took a pot down from the wall, and rubbed him with what it contained, so that the youth was as well as before. After some time the man made another journey, and said he should not return for a month. He then told the youth that if he went into the fourth room, he must not think for a moment that his life would be spared. One, two, even three weeks the youth refrained from entering the forbidden room, but then, having no longer any command over himself, he stole in. There stood a large black horse in a stall, with a trough of burning embers at its head and a basket of hay at its tail. The youth thought this was cruel, and therefore changed their position, putting the basket of hay at the horse's head. The horse thereupon said, As you have so kind a disposition that you enable me to get food, I will save you. Should the troll return and find you here, he will kill you. But now you must go into the chamber above this, and take one of the suits of armor that hang there, but on no account take the one that is bright. On the contrary, select the most rusty you can see, and take that. 
choose also a sword and saddle in like manner. The youth did so, but he found the hole very heavy for him to carry. When he came back, the horse said that he should now strip and wash himself well in the kettle, which stood boiling in the next apartment. I feel afraid, thought the youth, but nevertheless did so. When he had washed himself, he became comely and plump, and as red and white as milk and blood, and much stronger than before. Are you sensible of any change? asked the horse. Yes, answered the youth. Try to lift me, said the horse. Ay, that he could, and brandished the sword with ease. Now lay the saddle on me, said the horse. Put on the armor, and take the whip of thorn, the stone, and the water-flask, and the pot with the ointment, and then we will set out. When the youth had mounted the horse, it started off at a rapid rate. After riding some time, the horse said, I think I hear a noise. Look round. Can you see anything? A great many men are coming after us, certainly a score at least, answered the youth. Ah, that is the troll, said the horse. He is coming for us with all his companions. They traveled for a time until their pursuers were gaining on them. Throw now the thorn whip over your shoulder, said the horse, but throw it away from me. The youth did so, and at the same moment there sprang up a large, thick wood of briars. The youth now rode on a long way, while the troll was obliged to go home for something wherewith to hew a road through the wood. After some time the horse said again, Look back! Can you see anything now? Yes, a whole multitude of people, said the youth, like a church congregation. That is the troll. Now he has got more with him. Throw out now the large stone, but throw it far from me. When the youth had done what the horse desired, there arose a large stone mountain behind them. So the troll was obliged to go home after something with which to bore through the mountain, and while he was thus employed, the youth rode on a considerable way. But now the horse again bade him look back. He then saw a multitude like a whole army. They were so bright that they glittered in the sun. Well, that is the troll with all his friends, said the horse. Now throw the water bottle behind you, but take good care to spill nothing on me. The youth did so, but notwithstanding his caution he happened to spill a drop on the horse's loins. Immediately there rose a vast lake, and the spilling of the few drops caused the horse to stand far out in the water. Nevertheless, he at last swam to the shore. When the trolls came to the water, they lay down to drink it up, and they gulped and gulped till they burst. Now we are quit of them, said the horse. When they had traveled on a very long way, they came to a green plain in a wood. Take off your armor now, said the horse, and put on your rags only. Lift my saddle off and hang everything up on that large hollow linden. Make yourself then a wig of pine moss. Go to the royal palace, which lies close by, and ask there for employment. When you desire to see me, come to this spot, shake the bridle, and I will instantly be with you. The youth did as the horse told him, and when he had put on the moss wig, he became so pale and miserable to look at that no one would recognize him. On reaching the palace, he only asked if he might serve in the kitchen to carry wood and water to the cook. But the cookmaid asked him why he wore such an ugly wig. Take it off, she said. I will not have anybody here be so frightful. That I cannot, answered the youth, for I am not very clean in the head. Dost thou think, then, that I will have thee in the kitchen, if such be the case? said she. Go to the master of the horse. Thou art fittest to carry muck from the stables. When the master of the horse told him to take off his wig, he got the same answer, so he refused to have him. Thou canst go to the gardener, he said, thou art only fit to go and dig the ground. The gardener allowed him to remain, but none of the servants would sleep with him, so he was obliged to sleep alone under the stairs of the summer-house, 
which stood upon pillars and had a high staircase, under which he laid a quantity of moss for a bed, and there lay as well as he could. When he had been some time in the royal palace, it happened one morning, just at sunrise, that the youth had taken off his moss wig, and was standing washing himself, and appeared so handsome it was a pleasure to look on him. The princess saw from her window this comely gardener, and thought she had never before seen any one so handsome. She then asked the gardener why he lay out there under the stairs. "'Because none of the other servants will lie with him,' answered the gardener. "'Let him come this evening and lie by the door in my room,' said the princess. "'They cannot refuse, after that, to let him sleep in the house.' The gardener told this to the youth. "'Dost thou think I will do so?' he said. "'If I do so, all would say there is something between me and the princess.' "'Thou hast reason, forsooth, to fear such a suspicion,' replied the gardener. "'Such a fine, comely lad as thou art.' "'Well, if she has commanded it, I suppose I must comply,' said the youth. In going upstairs that evening he stamped and made such a noise that they were obliged to beg him to go more gently, lest it might come to the king's knowledge. When within the chamber he lay down and began immediately to snore. The princess then said to her waiting-maid, "'Go gently and pull off his moss wig.' Creeping softly toward him, she was about to snatch it, but he held it fast with both hands and said she should not have it. He then lay down again and began to snore. The princess made a sign to the maid, and this time she snatched his wig off. There he lay so beautifully red and white, just as the princess had seen him in the morning sun. After this the youth slept every night in the princess's chamber. But it was not long before the king heard that the garden lad slept every night in the princess's chamber, at which he became so angry that he almost resolved on putting him to death. This, however, he did not do, but cast him into prison, and his daughter he confined to her room, not allowing her to go out, either by day or night. Her tears and prayers for herself and the youth were unheeded by the king, who only became the more incensed against her. Some time after this there arose a war and disturbance in the country, and the king was obliged to take arms and defend himself against another king, who threatened to deprive him of his throne. When the youth heard this he begged the jailer would go to the king for him, and proposed to let him have armor and a sword, and allow him to follow to the war. All the courtiers laughed when the jailer made known his errand to the king. They begged he might have some old trumpery for armor, that they might enjoy the sport of seeing the poor creature in the war. He got the armor, and also an old jade of a horse, which limped on three legs, dragging the fourth after it. Thus they all marched forth against the enemy. But they had not gone far from the royal palace before the youth stuck fast with his old jade in a swamp. Here he sat beating and calling to the jade, He, wilt thou go? He, wilt thou go? This amused all the others, who laughed and jeered as they passed. But no sooner were they all gone than, running to the linden, he put on his own armor and shook the bridle, and immediately the horse appeared, and said, Do thou do thy best, and I will do mine. When the youth arrived on the field, the battle had already begun, and the king was hard-pressed but just at that moment the youth put the enemy to flight. The king and his attendants wondered who it could be that came to their help, but no one had been near enough to speak to him, and when the battle was over he was away. When they returned, the youth was still sitting fast in the swamp, beating and calling to his three-legged jade. They laughed as they passed, and said, Only look, yonder sits the fool yet. The next day, when they marched out, the youth was still sitting there, and again they laughed and jeered at him, but no sooner had they all passed by than he ran again to the linden, and everything took place as on the previous day. 
Everyone wondered who the strange warrior was who had fought for them, but no one approached him so near that he could speak to him. Of course no one ever imagined that it was the youth. When they returned in the evening and saw him and his old jade still sticking fast in the swamp, they again made jest of him. One shot an arrow at him and wounded him in the leg, and he began to cry and moan so that it was sad to hear, whereupon the king threw him his handkerchief that he might bind it about his leg. When they marched forth the third morning, there sat the youth, still calling to his horse, He, wilt thou go? He, wilt thou go? No, no, he will stay there till he starves, said the king's men as they passed by, and laughed so heartily at him that they nearly fell from their horses. When they had all passed, he again ran to the linden, and came to the battle at just the right moment. That day he killed the enemy's king, and thus the war was at an end. When the fighting was over, the king observed his handkerchief tied round the leg of the strange warrior, and by this he easily knew him. They received him with great joy, and carried him with them up to the royal palace, and the princess, who saw them from her window, was so delighted no one could tell. There comes my beloved also, said she. He then took the pot of ointment and rubbed his leg, and afterward all the wounded, so that they were all well again in a moment. After this the king gave him the princess to wife. On the day of his marriage he went down to the stable to see the horse, and found him dull, hanging his ears and refusing to eat. When the young king, for he was now a king, having obtained half of the realm, spoke to him and asked him what he wanted, the horse said, I have now helped thee forward in the world, and I will live no longer. Thou must take thy sword and cut my head off. No, that I will not do, said the young king. Thou shalt have whatever thou wilt, and always live without working. If thou wilt not do as I say, answered the horse, I shall find a way of killing thee. The king was thus obliged to slay him, but when he raised the sword to give the stroke, he was so distressed that he turned his face away. But no sooner had he struck his head off than there stood before him a handsome prince in the place of the horse. Whence in the name of heaven dost thou come? asked the king. It was I who was the horse, answered the prince. Formerly I was king of the country whose sovereign you slew yesterday. It was he who cast over me a horse's semblance, and sold me to the troll. As he is killed, I shall recover my kingdom, and you and I shall be neighboring kings, but we will never go to war with each other. Neither did they. They were friends as long as they lived, and the one came often to visit the other. End of section 51